Okay, last week, last week we looked at our call as part of the consecration process where we are consecrating, preparing ourselves to go before God. We looked at our call to fast and to pray as the means by which we perform that consecration by the grace of God. Getting our souls, our minds, and our bodies ready, starting at home. Not here. We begin preparing ourselves to meet with one another, but with the Lord our God to give Him our worship, to commune with Him at the top of the mountain, receive His life, and go back into the world with that life. We reminded ourselves of why we fast, why we're called to fast, what it produces in us. And I also gave you a two-page front and back sheet of suggested prayers that can begin to help us no matter what our circumstance is in the mornings at home, going before our sacred space, going before an icon in our house and preparing our hearts through those prayers. We also talked about those actions and prayers when we come to the building. When we arrive and we enter into the narthex, we talked about the narthex is filled with icons for a reason. It's helping to set the stage of the reality that heaven and earth are joining together in just a short time here. And so we're to go around all of the icons, reverencing them, acknowledging St. Peter, acknowledging our Lord's Mother Mary, our Lord Jesus Christ. All of those icons are in there because remember, the ones represented in the icons are not dead. They're more alive than we are. And so we join with them as we enter in. When we come into the building, we talked about the holy water, stopping for a moment, not rushing, dipping our fingers in the holy water, signing ourselves with the cross on our foreheads to remember our baptism, to have an actual remembrance. The event in the past becomes actualized in the now, and I remember that I have been washed clean by Christ in that act, called His own, and now I'm ready to take my position with all the other stones. So before we start getting into, and what we're going to cover today, I should say, is we are simply going to go over the hymn and the procession today. That's all we're going to get through because there's so much in there for us to get awakened to and know what's going on and and know how to encounter God even in those two items. And before we get to that, I want to remind us of why we are taking such in-depth time to study the Mass. I read to you a quote the first week we did this from Father Alexander Schmemann. Today I'm going to read you another one. Father Alexander Schmemann, known again as one of the foremost theologians on liturgical theology and the sacraments, he writes this about Christian worship, the Mass, the Divine Liturgy of the Church. He says, We must discover that worship is the life of the church. The public act which eternally actualizes the nature of the church as the body of Christ, an act, moreover, that's not partial, having reference only to the function of church, her just corporate prayer, or expressing only one of her aspects, but which embrace, expresses, inspires, and defines the whole church, her whole essential nature, her whole life. 
The Christian religion is not only a doctrine, it is a public action or deed. Let's take a look at a couple things in that that he says. He says, worship is the life of the church, the public act that eternally actualizes the nature of the church as the body of Christ. And he's teaching us here that what we do in Mass, that public act filled with God, filled with grace, what we do in the Mass, the divine liturgy actualizes, that is, it reveals to us who we are, who the church is, It makes all of that real in our lives by the grace of God when we do the act of worship. Who we are as Christians and what our eternal place is in the kingdom of God and what that looks like. In other words, what we do on earth in the Mass is what's going on eternally in the heavenlies where the body of Christ is perfected. Let me give you a few examples of this, starting with the Old Testament design of the temple. Because one of the things we need to look at when we think about Christian worship and we consider the Mass like we're considering the Mass, is you have to understand the strand of God's perfect orchestration as long as He has had a people of the way He wanted them to worship uh, worship Him and why. In the Old Testament, according to Exodus in chapter 26, we have an incredible description where God is telling them exactly how to create the tabernacle, which would be used in the design of the temple later on. And I'm going to give you a few things. God commanded that the walls of the tabernacle, which was the tent of meeting, be lined with purple, blue, and scarlet curtains. And who knows what was on those curtains? Anyone? Angels. Angels. Cherubim. Picture the blue and scarlet gorgeous cloth with golden cherubim. All the the angelic surrounding the entire tabernacle. That was the picture you saw when you walked in. And once the temple was built, the curtain separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple also had this same design. Cherubim, angelic, all around it. Even two cherubim, and you've seen the Ark of the Covenant. The cherubim, there are two of them on what was considered the throne, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the temple, you had a number of things. You had the bread of presence. The presence of who? God. God. The bread of presence was to them the signifying material that showed them God is present with them. God in bread. Of course, there's no Eucharistic prefiguring in that, right? Not at all. And in the temple, you also had incense constantly burning. What does the incense represent to us? Prayers. Our prayers are being... We see them going before God. And we're encouraged by that. That was the Old Testament design of the temple. And there's so many other things that I could go into. But what I want to do, just to show you the idea that Father Schmemann is presenting here, I want to take you from the Old Testament, skip over the church here on earth, and I want to take you to Revelation, to the worship in heaven. 
In the book of Revelation, we have a lot of descriptions that John beholds when he sees the worship of God happening in the eternal kingdom of God. He sees cherubim. He sees angels flying all around the throne. We find them present there. We see the bread of presence, but it's not bread anymore. It is the Lamb of God, front and center, the great high priest. And we're even told in Revelation that He is seen as the Lamb who was slain. We will recognize Him as that bread of heaven, the Lamb that was slain for us. In Revelation, you also see incense going before the throne, representing once again, it even says in Revelation, the prayers of the people. And what I want you to get the tie-in here is that there has never been a time so long as God has had a people where He did not on earth design worship in such a way that it gave mankind the opportunity through all of these physical things because they are all physical. Why? Because we are physical. We see, we hear, we smell, we touch. Right? Taste. Taste. Thank you. All of these things. And God wanted us to experience eternity in the now with every faculty we have. That's how God has designed Christian worship. And what we do in the Mass is that continuation, Old Testament, New Testament, and the eternal worship of God. Designed to reveal God to us and who we are as His chosen people. And that's what Father Shemaiman is trying to get across to us, why it is so incredibly important that we understand that which we do and say, believe, and how we worship our Lord. And that's why he says our worship embraces, expresses, inspires, and defines the whole church, her whole essential nature, her whole life. And may it be that we grow to maturity in our understanding and practice of the worship of God towards our own transformation as the body of Christ. So now we're going to get back to where we were. We left off last time as we approached the place in which we're going to worship in the nave. And we genuflect, bowing, and we cross ourselves. If you cannot genuflect, we bow. But we acknowledge Christ on His throne of the altar, and we take our place to worship Him. Okay. <clears throat> I told you guys three weeks ago, and we looked at it in the Old Testament, that there are a number of things consecrated regarding God's meeting with His people. The people would consecrate themselves. The priests would consecrate themselves. And even the place of meeting, the mountain itself, would be consecrated unto God. And as we look towards the procession and the hymn, I thought it might, you might be interested to know how the priests and the clergy prepare themselves for worship. We talk about consecration. I want you to hear these prayers that we attend to as we put on the various garments that you see, the vestments that we wear. Because they are our preparation. It is my preparation before I dare ascend the altar in the presence of God. 
And I'm not going to go over all of them, but I'm going to give you a good clip, okay, of, of what we do. And the first thing that we do, the first garment that we do, we use is called the amis. The amis is a rectangular cloth with two ribbons that allow it to tie onto you. And what we do is we place the cloth draped over our head, okay? And we pray this prayer. Place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation upon my head to repel the assaults of the devil. The first thing we do, the first thing I do, is I go right to spiritual warfare regarding myself and all of us. Place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation is straight out of Ephesians 6, the armor of God. Okay, put on the full armor of God, we're told. And the helmet of salvation is the protector of the mind. Place, O Lord, the helmet of salvation upon my head to repel the assaults of the devil. No distractions from him. I come to you to serve you, to lead your people to you, which is the place of the priest. The place of the priest, it's very simple. He's the lead worshiper. Okay, as opposed to Rome where he's become Christ in persona. And that's a new thing, by the way, even in Rome. The reality is the reason we all face the same way, the reason I face the same way at the altar as you, the reason I go up to the altar first is because I'm leading all of you. You're coming with me. So place this on my head. Let no distraction come into my mind so that I can worship you and therefore your people can without distraction, you see? So that's the first thing that's put on. Second thing that's put on is the alb. The alb is the white garment, the white robe. And when we put on the alb, we pray, Cleanse me, O Lord, and purify my heart, that being made white in the blood of the Lamb, I may attain everlasting joy. It's a bit of a confessional prayer. It's a bit of begging for the mercy of God. All in one. I am separating myself. If I have committed sins in the week, and though you don't believe it, I do from time to time. I'll just let you know right now. I pray, white garment, wash away my sins. Clothe me in white. And it reminds me personally, I again go back to my baptism. I again go back to my baptism. And we'll look at that in a minute too. Next thing I put on is called the cincture. The cincture is that thick rope that goes around my waist and ties on. When I put on the cincture, the prayer is this. Gird me, O Lord, with the girdle of purity, and quench in me the fire of concupiscence, that the grace of temperance and chastity may abide in me. Again, it's a prayer of purification, very specifically against any lusts of the flesh. It can be material lust, lust of the flesh, you name it. That's what concupiscence is. Keep that away, Lord. And let the grace of temperance, that self-control, let temperance and chastity fill me, abide in me. That's our prayer. And the final thing I'll let you know is I put on the stole next. And the prayer is this, Give me again, O Lord, the robe of immortality, which I lost by the transgression of my first parents. And although I am unworthy to come unto thy holy sacrament, grant that I may attain everlasting 
felicity. You need to see that just like the body of Christ, all of you living stones, the royal priesthood, we talked last week about you consecrating yourselves before you come here and when you come here. Continuing to go through that prayerful process by the grace of God to be, become one with the body in order to lift up the worship of God eternal and experience Him and receive from Him. Just like you're doing that, all of the clergy are doing that. We, just like the Old Testament, the people are consecrating themselves, the priests are consecrating themselves, and the altar is a consecrated place already, following in line with God's commands all along. And so now we line up in the back and we're ready for the hymn and the processional. So the Mass begins with the processional, but we process into what? The hymn, right? We're singing a hymn at the very beginning. So Mass begins with God's people singing praise and worship for who He is and all that He has done for us. And don't answer this question out loud. I want you to consider this. <clears throat> How many of us pay enough attention to the words that we're singing in the hymn that the words become our own expression of worship to God? And I know sometimes sometimes they'll throw in a hymn that's a little less familiar, but that's okay. We need to grow in our hymnology. And sometimes the hymns are very familiar. But do you catch yourself from time to time, and by the way, we all do, do you catch yourself from time to time mindlessly rather going through the music of the hymn when the meat of the hymn is not in the music, but it's in the words being lifted up by your voice as a praise to God? What was the first hymn we sang this morning? My point is made. (laughs) Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. You read the words to that hymn, it's an incredible, incredible hymn of praise offering to God. What I'm trying to get at here is this. Worship is intellectual, emotional, spiritual, and physical labor. The word liturgy itself means the work of the people. So when we sing the hymns, when we pray the prayers, but when we sing the hymns, find a way, even if you have to stop singing from time to time, to look at the words and then begin again. Make the words your prayer of praise to God. Because again, God's worth is unfathomable and it is unquestionable regardless of what your life has been like recently. We are here to give the sacrifice by grace beyond ourselves of praise and worship to God. So when you see the hymn, focus on the words. Let them be unite yourself to the words with one another. And let's lift up worship to God appropriately in that manner. Okay. So we process into the hymn. The first thing I want to go over with you is a little understanding of how the processional came about. There's a lot of evidence, and many Orthodox teachers have taught that there was a small period of time, it wasn't long, 
But there was a small period of time in the early church where the processional was done a bit different. It had a processional. But the way that it worked is that everyone would meet outside of the church building. All together. They wouldn't go in until it was time. Then the priest and the clergy and whoever else as it developed would lead all of the people. We would all go up to meet with God together. That was the initial processional of the church. Later on, that became fairly impractical beyond Constantine because once Christianity got legalized, it really started to majorly grow and flourish and it became a little less practical. And so what we have is the processional today, and I want you to get this. Don't think of it as whittled down. It is the same thing. We have all come in. You came in, you dipped your finger in the holy water, you genuflected, you've prepared your hearts. You have come. We have come together. What the processional, one of the things it's given to us for, is to remind us. When you see the processional come, it's not, look, they're coming forward. It's no, you think in your minds and in your hearts, we are coming. You see the processional and we have come to offer our worship to God. That's what the main idea of the processional is today. And we fix our hearts by grace to that end. But, not only as a reminder of the fact that we have come together, I want you to understand that there are so many things in the processional itself that speak to us that where we can encounter God, be instructed by God, let our hearts be lifted up by the things that we see coming at us. And I want to show you those things. Now the first thing that comes out is the thoroughfare, has the thurible or the censer. So the first thing that comes out is we see the smoke rising from the incense. Automatically the first thing in our minds is... What we do today, what we sing right now, everything that we pray right now is being heard eternally before the throne of God. You see the smoke rising? Let your mind go to that. We are not coming to worship in a vacuum. We are coming to the eternal worship of God where God is hearing and seeing and interacting by His grace in everything that we say and everything that we do. That's what the smoke gives us at the beginning of the processional. The second item, the processional cross comes out. When we see a cross... When you see a cross, any cross, even the processional cross, what comes to your mind? When you see a cross, what, what, can it, what does it represent to us? Christ, Christ and Christ what? Crucified. Christ crucified and why? For us. What was accomplished in the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ? Redemption. Redemption. Dominion over the devil. And I'll throw out something else. Death and Hades. Right? Did Jesus not die on the cross? Yes, He did. Why did He die? So that we wouldn't have to. To defeat what He never created. Death. What came out of Him, spilled out of Him while He was on the cross? His blood. What does His blood do for us? Cleans us. Washes us what? Washes away our sins. Washes away our sins. 
I'll throw one more in there from John chapter 12. Jesus said to His disciples, If I be high and lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. He he said this signifying the death that He would die. So when you see the processional cross come in, any of these things should be in your mind and heart. I see the cross. I've seen the smoke, the prayers. I know we're being heard. I see the cross and immediately in your mind, Lord, you have done this, all of this for me. You did this for an act of redemption. You did this for the cleansing of my sins, unworthy that I am, out of your infinite love for me. I'm voicing thoughts that that I tend to have when I see the processional cross. Things go through my mind because we need to attach ourselves to these physical things that are given to us by God, set apart. Set apart, not just to be a piece of wood. Let let me give you an example of this. Perfect example from the Old Testament of this, uh, in fact, the cross. Do you remember when uh, Israel once again was disobedient to God? And so this time God sends a plague of snakes. The snakes start biting the folks and they start getting poisoned. And God calls Moses to Himself and He says, Moses, set up a staff in the middle of the people. When you set the staff up, put the snake wrapped around it on the staff. And when they look upon the staff, they'll be healed of the poison and of the plague of snakes, delivered from the plague of snakes. So Moses does that and he fixes it. And everyone that looked upon that staff was healed if they were poisoned already and delivered from the further plague of snakes. Now what was the staff? The staff was a piece of wood. If you would have chopped at it, it would have splintered. It was a piece of wood. But let God set aside something of earth for a particular use. And it became that splintering, potentially splintering staff became the actual means by which God would heal people. You know what that's called? Sacrament. God takes something physical, sets it aside and consecrates it. Through His grace, His activity works in and through it. It's there in the incense. It's there in that processional cross. So if we will start looking at these things prayerfully, you might just be surprised how you experience God in that very, very brief moment. Okay, so after the cross, we have the two candles or the torches carried by the two torchbearers. Now when you see the torches... You're going to see something of Christ, and you're going to see something of yourselves. As far as Christ is concerned, Jesus said, I am the what of the world? I am the light of the world. So when you see the light coming in, it is Him. Now, two of them. There's two torches for the same reason that on the altar, you notice on the altar proper, I'm not talking about behind the altar, but on the actual altar there are only two candles, and there are only to be two candles. And again, those candles represent two aspects of truth. One, the light of the world is with us. Jesus is present. But why two? One stands for the fact that this Christ was fully human. 
The other one stands for this Christ was fully divine. And so when you see those processional candles come up, it is the exact same meaning. The light of the world has come. He's come for us. He's come to be with us. And He was fully human and He was fully divine that our humanity might be made divine by His presence with us and in us. Okay? But you also see something about yourselves when you see the torches come forward. Because if you remember in the Gospel, when Jesus proclaimed Himself, I am the light of the world, He looked at His disciples and He pointed at them and He said, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, you see. Because I've come, in other words, as the light of the world, from Pentecost on when I poured out my Holy Spirit into you, you became the continuing incarnational ministry, the reconciling ministry, reconciling the world to God. As I was the light of the world, you are the light of the world. So when you see those candles come forward, we remember Christ and His identity and His nature. And we also remember that by the grace of God at Pentecost and in our baptism, we have been filled with that light to bring that light to the world. The last part of the procession I want to mention to you, I want to mention to you the white robes, the albs that are worn by the priest, deacon, and the subdeacon. <coughs> Excuse me. In the early church, when someone was baptized, be they adult or a child, in the early church is immediately as they came out of the water, a white garment was placed over them. There was no lag time. They came up out of the water. They put a white robe upon them. And the white robe signified that the person who was baptized has been washed from the stain of sin, reunited to God, set apart by that, that act to be the royal priesthood, the holy nation. That's what the white robe signified. In fact, you see it even today in the baptismal prayers. In our baptismal prayer, one of the prayers prayed is, Almighty everlasting God, who has vouchsafed to regenerate this thy servant by water and the Holy Ghost, and has given unto him the remission of all his sins, the cleansing of all his sins. And then during the chrismation, when we place the white garment upon the child or the person, we pray, Receive this white garment. And see thou carry it without stain before the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, that thou mayest have eternal life. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 1 writes this, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. That's exactly the purpose of the white robe. And when you see us come in with the white robes, you need to remember what's been done for you. Not for the priest or the deacon or the subdeacon. We're remembering that for ourselves. You see those white robes, you begin to thank God. And there, because again, there's no way worthiness comes into the picture. Because of His unfathomable love, His worthiness, He has cleansed you despite what we deserve. 
and we thank him for that act in that moment. I want to close this time with the action that we all do when the procession passes you by. And I see almost all of you doing it. We bow and we sign ourselves with the cross as the procession passes by. Why do we bow? We talked about this the other week. Because every knee shall bow to Christ, right? But I want to remind you of this signing of the cross action. Because I dare say if we're not careful, this is yet another action that we do so frequently we're not considering the grace and the moment of the action and what's been given to us in the sign of the cross. So let me read to you a couple of statements by the early fathers on the sign of the cross. St. Ephraim the Syrian, he writes this, With the sign of the living cross, seal all thy doings, my son. Go not forth from the door of thy house till thou hast signed the cross, whether in eating or in drinking, whether in sleeping or in waking, whether in thy house or on the road, or again in the season of leisure, neglect not this sign, for there is no guardian like it. It shall be unto thee as a wall in the forefront of all thy doings. And teach this to thy children, that heedfully they be conformed to it. He's saying, at all times make the sign of the cross. Remember what we said, in the Mass, we become that which we do. It is to be habit-forming. What we do in the Mass is to be habit-forming in our very lives. Listen to St. Cyril of Jerusalem on the sign of the cross. Let us not then be ashamed to confess the crucified. Be the cross our seal made with boldness by our fingers on our brow and on everything. Over the bread we eat and the cups we drink in our comings in and goings out. So he's saying the same thing as St. Ephraim, but listen to this. He says, it is the sign of the faithful and the dread of devils. For He triumphs over them in the cross, having made a show of them openly. For when they see the cross, they are reminded of the crucified, and they are afraid of Him, who bruised the head of the dragon. Despise not the seal because of the freeness of the gift. Now I can't force everyone to have the faith that believes this. Never can. Can't force myself sometimes. But the reality is, and I will testify to it, I can't tell you how many times out and about, if I get an onslaught of temptations that are natural to who I am, and I stop and I make the sign of the cross, and perhaps I even pray the Jesus prayer in the moment, but I'm telling you, as I make the sign of the cross, that battle's over with really quickly. And I move on. And we face those things all the time. What I'm trying to help you see about the sign of the cross and making the sign of the cross is that it is an act 
where God meets us in that short moment. And He does something on our behalf. It is a gift from Him. It is not magic. Any more than we wouldn't say Eucharist is magic. Take a piece of bread. God fills Himself with it and feeds us. It is grace. God knows we are physical. And so He gives us physical things to do that when touched by grace, His activity comes into that moment. It reminds you of who you are. It absolutely reminds you of who you are, what's been done for you, and, and I love what he said, it's the sign of the faithful and the dread of devils, for he triumphed over them in the cross. They know it. They have to respond. They're not responding to you doing something with your arm. They're responding to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ that by grace comes into the moment. And you can experience that every time you make the sign of the cross in Mass when the processional comes by. What I want us to get as we continue moving forward in the Mass deeper and deeper into it and as we start getting to the ascent portion I want it to really become second nature in us that we get beyond rote actions and words and we truly focus our minds on the experience of God that can be had in the most minute little things in the mass and you know what I'll tell you my experience both when I've worshipped in the Mass or even when I am celebrating the Mass. I never know when I'm going to have a profound encounter with God. Because He knows what I need every time I come to Him. And He knows how to deliver Himself to me every time I come to Him. I'm going to miss that if I am not mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically Focusing on giving Him what He deserves. My sacrifice. My sacrifice of praise and worship. And if we will do that, you will encounter Him because He longs to share Himself with you every time you meet at Mass. And you'll never know when it's going to happen, how, or even what it might be producing in you towards your own transformation out of those besetting sins, out of the flesh and into all the realities and benefits of the kingdom of God. That's what happens when heaven and earth join together in the Mass with the God who loves them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.